Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Anybody want to work today? So we have been talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And gifts are like tools. And I brought a couple toolboxes out here because I hope that we understand that there are more than just one or two things that we can utilize in our Christian walk and in our experience with God to get a a, uh, momentum going or to get an effect happening for what needs to take place in the moment and in the hour. And so uh, when we look at these nine spiritual gifts that we see in 1 Corinthians, we need to understand that there are are more than nine. Uh, Some classify 19 in the New Testament listed. Some say there's 21. I think that uh, there's probably even more than that that are operational in the church, maybe not specifically written, detailed in the New Testament, but there are many, many spiritual gifts. And every single person who has named the name of Jesus has at least one spiritual gift. You want to know how? You want to know how I know that? Because your salvation is not a natural gift. Your salvation is a spiritual gift from God. So you are gifted. The word gift in the, in the Greek is uh, charismatic or charis, charisma. And so that means gifted. So we all have charisma. We all have a gift that we can share with our world, with our realm of influence, and with the body of Christ. Uh, Last time we addressed three of the nine gifts of the Spirit found in 1 Corinthians 12, and today I want to uh, just kind of rewind and go back to one of those for just a moment and then look at the next three that are in the category that we're going to uh, be covering today. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read verse 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 4. But but verse 1 says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and there were apparently some... Uh, things happening in that church that were just a little bit out of line, they were a little out of order. And so the Apostle Paul comes with a, a loving pastoral heart, an apostle heart to set things back in, in order to put them right. And here's what he says in the opening verse. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, who's he talking to? The church. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. This is customary of the way that the Apostle Paul writes is that when he is about to teach something, when he wants to lay a foundation of, of establishing a truth, he, he uh, addresses an, a, a very, I guess, uh, known ignorance of their mind. And how many of us would recognize that ignorant is not a dirty word here? Ignorance is something that we all have in certain areas of life. Before you started reading the Bible, can you raise your hand and say, I was ignorant of the Bible? I was ignorant of the things of God before I started searching out the things of God. Before you started doing the trade or the craft or the career that you're doing, there was a level of ignorance that you operated in. It may have been attractive at first that I want to do this or I would like to pursue that that thing in my life, but you just didn't have all the knowledge base to know how to do that thing. And so all of us, if we would humbly admit, are ignorant to certain things. I am ignorant to brain surgery. I have never done it, but if you would like I mean, to practice, I would probably try. I'd try about anything, right? No, you don't want someone who is ignorant or not learned or not trained in something to just launch out there and start practicing something. And here's what the apostle is saying is, 
because there is a level of unknowing, yet there is an interest in knowing, I don't want you to remain ignorant. Ignorance is just kind of something that is normal, but you don't have to stay ignorant. The apostle is saying you can learn better and you can learn these things. He says in verse 4, there are a diversity of gifts. In other words, there are many, many different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit, the spirit, God's Holy Spirit, the author of these gifts, the distributor of these gifts, there's one spirit. There are different kinds of ministries. Think about all of the different ways in which people will devote their lives to touching one need or a certain region of the world. Something that they have devoted their entire life to as a ministry, as a service calling. The word ministry is service. There are many but the same Lord. There are a diversification of activities, but is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of, say it with me, all. So these giftings are for the profit of the entire body, but it even goes further. It is for the profit of everyone. Did you know that the spiritual gifts in your life are used by God to influence the unbelieving world and the circle of people in your life that know not God? They are for the profit of all. For to one is given, now here here is the list, one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. These are the first two listed. We're going to talk about those today in, in a little more detail. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, we might desire a certain gift, and Paul the Apostle said there's nothing wrong with desiring. In fact, you should pursue spiritual gifts, but understand and recognize that it is as God wills. The gift of prophecy, prophetically speaking as a spokesperson, a mouthpiece of God. What thus saith the word of God. We just witnessed that today in our service. That wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't pre-prompted. I didn't say, hey, do you, do you want to say this today? But in the realm of our worship time, when a prophetic utterance comes forth, it's not the foretelling of end time events. In fact, only about 13% of all prophecy in the Bible is foretelling end time events much more you'll find that a prophetic utterance is given and it is speaking the mind and the heart of God to a people for a right now on time real revelation of what God is doing and wants to do in and through his people. Can someone say amen? Amen. We believe in the prophetic. And so these kinds of things the apostle is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. Now what has happened, and I want to just rewind the tape for a minute and go back to last week's conversation just a little bit. How many enjoyed last week's conversation, the Q&A? And I mean, that, wasn't that good? I like that. That was, it was really, I think, a rich way to kind of distribute the, the uh, information of the gift. But I want to go back to the, the topic of speaking in tongues for just a second because there's a few things I wasn't able to cover for sake of time, and I have a little bit more time today. This is a holiday weekend after all, <laughs> so we have a little more time. Tongues... The speaking of tongues does not indicate spiritual elitism. This has been, I think, uh, set as a gift above all gifts. Like if you speak in tongues, you have reached the apex of Christian experience. Here's what you have to understand about speaking in tongues is that even if a person speaks in tongues, they are still a flawed individual. None of us have reached perfection. 
None of us are in a glorified body. We are not in a, uh, a place in which we can never err, never be wrong. The same person that speaks in tongues on a Sunday morning can still gossip on Sunday afternoon. I mean, it just happens, all right? So we're none of us perfect individuals. So it is not that if you speak in tongues, you've reached a spiritual elitism. Okay, that, that's a misnomer. Tongues are also not required but are available to all believers. Not required, okay, but are available. If anybody tells you, well, you can't go to heaven unless you speak in tongues, they are wrong. They haven't read their Bible. That's not what the Bible says. No, no gift or no grace of God is intended to knock you out or disqualify you from the goodness of God or walking in the promises of God. Uh, some powerful ministers of bygone eras that never professed to speak in tongues, but I believe truly were used mightily by God. I'll just name a few, see if you can resonate with any of these names. St. Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Knox, Wesley, Bunyan, Spurgeon, Billy Graham, none of these ministers, none of these powerhouse for God in their generation people ever professed to have spoken tongues. And so it's not required, but it is available. Also, here's what you need to know. Tongues is not exclusive to Christianity. Therefore, it is not a sure sign of the spirit baptism. Now, pastor, you gotta, you gotta be specific on that one. What do you mean by that? Well, I will tell you that there have been references and accounts of Buddhists speaking in ecstatic languages which were not known. There have been examples of Mormons speaking in what they would call tongues. There would be spiritual mediums and other groups all report speaking in a language unknown by the hearer or the listener. Although, I would say those would fall into the category of counterfeit tongues. Everything that has a genuine will by nature have someone that will or the enemy of your soul make a counterfeit to it. So we can't just uh, be ignorant, as the Apostle Paul would say, and just swallow it and say, oh, everything that I hear is, is just from God. No, that's where discernment of the spirits come in, and we're going to talk about that today in just a little bit. So uh, we cannot just uh, accept something on the face value because it maybe looks spiritual to us. Because even Satan can pose as an angel of light. And we have to be discerning. Now here is the final thing I want to say about tongues from the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 14, 5, here's Paul saying, Now I would like all of you to speak in tongues. So not only did he not forbid it, Paul said, I, I wish that all would speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. So if there is, and I'm not saying there is, but if there is a spiritual gift that is above and beyond the others, then Paul the apostle would say it's not speaking in tongues because that's all fine and good. And Paul did it. He said, in fact, I speak in tongues. I think Paul has probably had a little Kentucky roots because he said, I speak in tongues more than y'all. <laughs> read it. It's in there. I think it's King James. Go ahead, read it. I speak in tongues more than y'all. But he said, that's all fine and good, but more that you would prophesy. Why? Why, Paul? Why to prophesy? Because one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets for, so that the church may be built up. So it's more important that you know what God is saying, thus saith the Lord, to the congregation, to your heart, to the people. I have a background and everything. I've watched some of your services. And the, the only problem is I don't speak in tongues. 
And I said, what, was that in our documents as a prerequisite? He says, no, but, but I kind of know that that's how you guys operate and you do that. And I said, listen, I'm okay with the fact that you don't speak in tongues if you're okay with the fact that I do. He said, okay. I said, you're hired. So, so it all worked out. So it's not a prerequisite and it's not a spiritual elitism. Paul the apostle said that it's all fine and good. He wants, wishes that everybody would do it, but even more that they would prophesy. Now let's look at the next three in the list. Uh, there's a, a, a diagram I want them to put up of the spiritual gifts. Can you put that? Uh, there we go. Uh, so last week we talked about uh, prophecy, gift of unknown tongues, and interpretation of tongues. This week I want us to, to talk about the other side of this, gifts of revelation. These gifts say something. So this is word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. What's the difference? They seem to, to kind of operate hand in glove. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. And we see again that Paul talks about this same kind of phraseology when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. So apparently uh, in the early church, there were people who were, were dying and Jesus hadn't returned yet. And so they're saying, oh my goodness, did we, did we miss the return of the Lord? How is this happening? And Paul's saying, just quiet your heart. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Because then he goes into and launches into the resurrection of the body. Very important, very important topic, very important subject. And again, he is establishing for them a basis of understanding. So that's what he's doing here with these gifts of the Spirit. And we have references in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament for how these gifts operated. Would anybody like to see how the word of knowledge has operated in the Bible? Two of you. Thank you. I will, I will teach you two of you today. And a whole bunch of people online. So word of knowledge defined as this. In-depth understanding of a particular issue, an impression that the Holy Spirit gives knowledge we would not otherwise have. Now, a word of knowledge is not coming up to somebody on a Sunday morning and telling them about a, a matter in their life that she, they shared with a friend earlier for a prayer request, and you heard the prayer, prayer request, and so you go and, and tell them you're praying specifically for something. That's good. You should do that. You should pray specifically. It's okay to do that. But that's not a word of knowledge. That's natural knowledge that was shared to you by information. What word of knowledge is, is something that you had no bearing of which or no basis to know pre- previously And by the Holy Ghost, God gives you knowledge about a certain event or a particular issue that you wouldn't otherwise know. It is the the revealing of something concerning the past, the present, or even the future. Many times when when counseling with someone or, or talking with someone, what will happen is that the real issue is not what they're dealing with in the the here and now, the moment. It could be something in the past. And that's why discernment and and a a word from God, word of knowledge can come to to really kind of unearth something that you had no bearing to know or they didn't share previously. It can also come and manifest as like an inner feeling, like just something isn't right that you know that that it's not lining up or or an urge, an impulse, uh, uh, some would call it a premonition. Uh, The Bible calls it an unction from the Holy One. Uh, And this gift is often... uh, operated in a shock factor kind of a a way. And I I don't say that that they try to shock them, but it's like a shock factor because someone that is operating in a word of knowledge will give you information that really you know and they know could not have been 
disclosed any other way. Maybe they never told another soul, but God reveals it to you by the Spirit, and that is like a wow. That is a shock factor when you recognize that there's no other way but God that that could have happened because the, the information didn't come naturally. Now, a couple of biblical examples. You can write these down. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we, we, talk, we, we see that uh, Elijah has, is passing the mantle to his protege, Elisha. And so Elijah was this great prophet of God, and he operated in, in signs, miracles, and wonders, raised the dead, uh, declared fire to come down from heaven. I mean, all these wonderful things. But Elisha, his protege, actually had uh, similar and, and in some ways even more powerful types of, of ministry experiences. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha operates in a word of knowledge when he's standing before the king and he is being tested as a prophet, a true prophet of God, would speak on behalf of God and would tell the oracles of God. And so in, in 2 Kings 6, Elisha has the opportunity to prove his salt, to determine whether or not he is speaking on behalf of God when he declares and reveals to the king things that were said in his own bedchambers. No one could get close to the bedchambers of the king. There were guards, there were, there were rooms, there, there was lots of separation. No one could get there, but by the Spirit of God, Elisha was able to reveal to the king things that no human could have possibly known. And it was a proof positive and sign that he was speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the one and true living God. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we see that there is a prophet named Agabus, and Agabus predicted a severe famine... And it helped the disciples who were in need. This was a word of knowledge. He knew something was coming that nobody else in the region had, had seen. It was like if you were looking at the signs of the weather, the weather patterns did not line up for a famine the way that it was being predicted or a knowledgeable word was given to this prophet to tell the people and the disciples were helped from that. Jesus operated in the gift of, of knowledge many times, word of knowledge in his earthly ministry, uh, you, you recall that Jesus encountered a woman that was at the well. Now, this woman had a, a, a reputation, and so there were things that were commonly known about her in the natural, and Jesus dialogued with her and discussed things with her about those things that happened in the natural. But when that woman went from the well, when Jesus said, I don't condemn you, and, and uh, he gave, forgave her and said, I, I will give you water that you will never thirst again, not water that comes out of this earth, but water that is from the Spirit. She had given her trust and her allegiance and her belief into uh, the hands of Jesus, and so she believed upon Christ. That is how salvation occurs. It's not a, a, a prayer that we rehearse, although praying is important, but it is by giving our belief, our trust, our allegiance to Jesus. When she did that, the Bible says that she dropped her pail, she ran into the city, she became an evangelist. Anybody wants to say that women can't evangelize, can't preach? This woman was preaching, she was evangelizing because she went and she told the city, here's what she told them. You have to come and see this man who told me all the things I have ever done, told me things I have done in my life. What was that? That was a word of knowledge. Jesus had given her things that, yeah, on the natural, by reputation, people would have known that. But there were other things that were way more penetrating to her heart and soul. He spoke to the depth of her need. And he knew things about her that she had never revealed before. It was so fascinating. It was so captivating that she ran and evangelized and told all the townspeople, you need to come out and see this. Jesus operating in the word of knowledge. At the Last Supper, we see that Jesus uh, is telling his disciples, revealing to them some things that were happening just before his passion 
He'd been telling them for a long time that he was going away and that uh, what was going to happen, you know, he was going to be betrayed. And they didn't want to believe him, did they? They didn't want to lose their master. And so at a certain time in the supper, Jesus looks over to Judas and says to him, do what you must do and do it quickly. This was a shock to Judas because he thought he had laid this great plan to betray Jesus and nobody knew it. But Jesus discerned it by the Spirit and in a word of knowledge, he knew already what was about to happen. It had been revealed to him and Judas slipped away from the dinner and did that. Now, something about uh, knowledge that I believe is, is kind of a, 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 I want to say a, a, a tricky wicket, I think, for a sticky wicket for uh, theological minds is that we get into this notion of the foreknowledge of God and predestination. And that could be a, a message all on its own. But when we talk about the gift of knowledge, we have to touch for just a minute on foreknowledge. Because foreknowledge, just because God knows that something is likely to happen or will happen, does not necessitate predestination. According to Dr. Heiser, this is a, a logical fallacy in the Christian church where we try to choose between either God knows everything and has predestined it, or he does not predestine things and therefore he didn't know them. Foreknowledge, just because God knows that something is possible or will happen, does not necessitate him predetermining it. God did not predestine Adam and Eve to fall. The fall was not predestined. It was possible because of free will. God knew he had foreknowledge what was going to happen, but he didn't make it happen as though we were robots. And that's where the, the uber side of predestination gets into is that we're robots. We don't really have a, a, a decision. We really can't make up our mind. So let me give you some Bible when it comes to predestination not necessitating a foreknowledge. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 23, David is, is this mighty warrior and he is going from place to place and having uh, all these great successes, but he gets to the place where he's on the radar of King Saul, and Saul doesn't like him anymore because now th they said Saul has slayed a thousands, but David has tens of thousands. David's popularity is rising so high, and so he's all the time on the run from King Saul, yet he's still trying to do the things that God would want him to do. And so uh, David comes before the Lord in 1 Samuel 23 with a question about something that is possible to happen or likely to happen. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy this city on my account. So Saul is going to take out an entire city just because David has been kind or had been in that area. Will the men of, Kel Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? In other words, are they going to give me up? Are they going to wrap me out? And here's what the Lord says. Oh, and then he says, Will Saul come down as your servants has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said to him, He will come down. So, so David is a man of prayer. And he's saying, If I go to this city and I trust these men of Calah who have helped out in the past, are they going to give me up because they fear Saul more? And if that happens, is Saul going to come down here and destroy them? So he's really trying to protect these people, even though they're probably going to rat him out. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David said to his men, who were about 600, uh, then David and his men, who were about 600, arose, departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped to Calah, he gave up his expedition. What do we see here? What we see is that David is asking God 
about a, an event that he was intending to do. He was going to go down to the city, but he said, God, before I go, are the people going to rat me out? And God said, yeah, that's what they're going to do. Oh, and if they do, is Saul going to come down here and take control of this? And God said, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And so by human decision, what David decided to do was not go down to that city. God knew, he foreknew what was going to happen, but it never actually happened. So he didn't predestine that it would happen. He gave the choice to David as to what to do. It's kind of like uh, as parents, we, we can look at our, our kids and we can tell them, listen, if you jump on that motorbike, having not ever rode a motorbike without a helmet, and you hit that, that gear in the right place, and you hit that gas, and you go down that hill, you are likely, no, you are going to fall off of that motorbike. Like, we foreknow what's going to happen. Does that mean as a parent we predetermined that it was going to happen? No, we just have knowledge base. We have more life experience. And so God knows things and outcomes that will happen, he pre-knows, even though things don't have to be predestined. So let's, let's change gears for just a minute, and let's go into the word of wisdom. Now, we talked about the, the different gifts last week, the, word, uh, the uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. If I were to ask you, in these toolboxes, what is the best gift? What is the best tool? If I were to ask you, what is the best tool? What would your answer be? Depends on the job, doesn't it? Good answer. What is the best tool? What is the best gift of the Spirit? Depends on the circumstance. If you need to hold the back of a screw that has a, a nut on it, can you hold it with this? You could probably get it in the piece of wood with this. You're not supposed to, but you could. I have. <laughs> So many times what we do is we look at the tool that we have and say, oh, a hammer, that's the best tool in the box. Why is it the best tool in the box? Because one that you're most well-versed in. And here's the problem. If we think that one gift of the Spirit is better than another, if a hammer is our favorite tool, then every problem we look at looks like a nail. Oh, here's my hammer. Let me get the nail. Let me, let me just hammer that out. No, sometimes it needs to be loved through instead of hammered out. And so if we think that having given all of these precious and great gifts, that there's only one or two because we're strong in those areas, that they're the best gift, then we will neglect such a great toolbox that God has given us in use for the other things that are available in the church. So we can't just look at a couple of strong points and say, well, those are the best. No, Depending on the situation, depending on the job at hand, the Holy Spirit will diversify and give the gifts as he wills to the church. So word of wisdom. We know that knowledge is supernatural knowing is something. Word of wisdom is the supernatural application of knowledge in a particular situation. It helps us rightly determine and decide and know what we should do at a given moment. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So now, someone who has operated in the gift of the a word of knowledge, someone has given you a, a word, and they know something. They confirm that something was happening or going on in your life or happened in the past. It's what you do with that knowledge. It's not for them to do it. It's what you do with that knowledge that will apply wisdom. Pastor Matt Morgan said it like this, 
this is not common wisdom. This gift thrives in times of trial by precise application, being wise, understanding what to do with what you know. It's surveying the facts and asking God for the application. It's having a knowledge base and then applying that knowledge in a wise way. In the Old Testament, Joseph was given a dream by God. This was actually when he was still in prison. Joseph was a man who uh, did not act very wisely early on in his life because he had a dream from God. He was a dreamer. He had a dream from God early in his life, in his teenage years, after his daddy had given him a coat of many colors. And he told his brothers, he ran, and he told his brothers what the dream was and said, yeah, and in my dream, you're going to bow down and worship me, like worship just like serve me. And his brothers didn't like that very good. And, and wisdom, uh, Joseph, in his early days, was not very wise because the knowledge that he had, he misapplied, and he did not speak wisely to his brothers older than him, which were able to throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, and he ends up in a prison. He serves in that prison for about 13 years. But while in that prison, during that time, God started to develop his character. God started to develop gifts in him and talents. And here's what, what happens in times of solitude and times of silence. And when, when we're alone with God, when we have some time to reflect, God begins to develop us. And so when Joseph has this next dream, he dreams that there's going to be a famine, famine in the land, that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of lack. And when he gets his prime opportunity before the Pharaoh, he tells the Pharaoh this dream. And Pharaoh is so intrigued that this, this young man is wise, not knowing he's operating through a spiritual gift. This is a gift that God has given. This isn't just natural wisdom. This dream that he received is now being interpreted in his heart. He's applying it. And so Old Testament Joseph was able to wisely steward all of those seven years of plenty and bounty so that when the seven years of famine arrived for all of Egypt, there was plenty in Pharaoh's house, more than enough. The other nations were coming to beg and ask for grain, even from Egypt. And so Joseph applied a, a wisdom mindset and, and gave a word of wisdom to the Pharaoh, which uh, gave him great honor. One of my favorite uh, stories, though it's so tragic, in the Old Testament about the word of wisdom actually happens to come from one of the wisest men ever on earth. You can see him sitting on his, his throne. It's uh, King Solomon. Do we have King Solomon? There's, there's King Solomon as he's standing. Uh, uh, he's sitting on his throne and standing before him are these two prostitutes. The Bible says that two prostitutes came before him. They both had had children. And one of them rolled over on their baby at night and killed the baby. And in the morning, the one that, that killed the baby grabbed the woman whose baby was born with her and took the baby into Solomon. And before the king, these two women stood. These two mothers were summoned. They stood. And the one is pleading and saying, my baby overnight died and she stole my baby. And the other one says, no, that's my baby. And so they have this dispute. And in his wisdom, Solomon is listening to this, and he wisely makes a proposition and it, it, it declares an edict of what should happen. And here's what he says. We find this in 1 Kings 3 and 24. Here's what he says. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, 
because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him up. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death for she is the mother. And all of Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. A word of wisdom will come in such a way to know the right application in the moment and what to do in order to create a solution to a conflict, to a problem, to a trouble, to some kind of trial. A word of wisdom in the right time is such a pleasant thing. It's such a a great gift to have, a gift of the Spirit. It's not one that that we, we see a lot of times maybe pronounced in, in such a dramatic way, but you need wise people in your life. And there are times you can pray, God, give me a word of wisdom in this matter. There are some things in your life that you're going through and you don't know whether to turn to the right or the left. And if you ask five Christians, you'll get seven opinions of what to do. You need the wisdom of God to help you understand how to apply the knowledge that you have. When presented with all the facts, then ask for the wisdom. Go to that toolbox and pull out the tool and ask the Spirit of God to help you to apply what he's teaching you. Discerning of spirits. Now, discernment, general discernment, detects something. I, I want to be careful here because I, I, I don't know that I have exact Bible on all of, uh, of general discernment, but it does seem to me that there is a, gen, just by having the Spirit of God living in you, you are made in the image of God anyway, but, but being born again, there is a discernment that you have by the Spirit. Now, that would vary, I, I believe, some from the actual gift of discerning of spirits. So discernment by itself is not listed as a gift, but discerning of spirits is. And what discerning of spirits does is it determines right from wrong and the motives behind the spiritual uh, sense of, of what is happening. It is information, uh, it is dis- discerning the information and motivation, whether it is from God or Satan, whether it is right or wrong. So that would be the definition. So this is discerning of spirits, not general discernment, not uh, that sense that you get that something's a little bit off sometimes. That, that's, that's in a different category. When we're talking about discerning of spirits, it is realizing that there are human spirits, there are evil spirits, which are like lesser Elohim, lesser, lesser uh, created being spirits that could be evil. And then there is the Holy Spirit. So there's not just one category. We have to understand when we discern spirits, is this coming from an evil spirit or is it coming from the spirit of God? Or is it just a human spirit? Is this just somebody saying something out of their own uh, knowledge base? In fact, whenever there is a word given in the church, like in a public setting like this, whenever there is a gift that is in operation, the Bible tells us that it is the job of the elders, those appointed in the church as an office of an elder, to sit and to judge, to test the spirits whether they're from God or not, to test that word whether it's from the Lord or not. And so in our services, we allow for the operational gifts of these, uh, the Holy Spirit in our services. Most commonly, it's, it's operation from people that already I know or have a relationship with or they're members or, or in good standing of this church. The Bible tells us to know those who labor among you. And so if someone, a stranger, someone I don't even know would come in and say, Pastor, I've got a a word to release from the church, I would ask them, let me hear it first. 
If I don't know them, I'm going to want to know what are, what are you going to say because it is my job as pastor along with the elders to discern whether or not that is appropriate. It's for the church. It's for the time. And even in, if someone speaks and gives a word that is known in the church, if, if one of the elders were to say, I just don't bear witness with that, then we would just strike it from the record. It doesn't mean that that person is bad or ill-intended or wrong motivation. It just means, no, we just don't bear witness with that. Very, very seldom does that ever happen. But that's what the Bible tells us that elders are to do, is that they are to, to judge uh, and, and to discern whether or not what is coming forth is from God. And here's the interesting thing about the, the revelational gifts, the gifts that, that say something, is that they're not often pronounced. They're not always just so dramatic and pronounced. Many times we can flow or operate in like a discerning of spirits without even really realizing it in the moment. But later on you look back and you realize God was helping me in that moment to not take the bait, to not go down that path. God was helping me to know this sounds too good to be true. And if this sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So that's not even discernment of the spirit. That's just kind of discretion that you have in your life. But we can observe looking back many times that we have flowed in a gift and not even maybe realized in the moment that we, we even had that gift. And a gift is given to us for a specific time and purpose, and so we don't own these gifts. They can actually ebb and flow. They can come and go. You don't always uh, operate in the thing that, that you had maybe in, in the past. There, there are times and seasons in your life. And so this is a detection from the Holy Spirit as to motivation, whether it's from God or Satan, right or wrong. In Acts chapter 10, we have an example of this. We have Cornelius, who's a devout and praying man, introduced to us. And it says that his prayers were heard and answered. And then he received some instruction to do some things that he really didn't, uh, it didn't square with his, his traditional faith to accept someone in and, and, and do something like Peter was about to do. And Peter has this vision and he receives supernatural insight about clean and unclean animals. And the, the overarching uh, effect of, of this is that Peter at first thought that he was being lied to by an evil spirit. When he saw this vision, he thought, no, this is an evil spirit. I cannot eat anything that's unclean. And then God had to speak to him and say, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. Rise, kill, and eat. And what that is was a, a leap that he took from understanding, not only now could all of these unclean animals be sanctified and eaten, aren't you glad? Anybody like bacon, aren't you glad? We can, we can now have pork. So, so that is a dietary law change. But the overarching bigger fact and point that is being made here is that Peter was a good Jew being given the understanding that it is now okay to go and take the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles. See, the Jews had called the Gentiles unclean, and they weren't worthy of the promises of God. But with the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, now this thing had been opened up, and the Gentiles could come. Now, how many are glad for that? Can you say amen? Thank you, Jesus, that I was grafted into the vine. And so Peter had to discern and really understand that, no, this is not an evil spirit trying to get me to do something against my religion. This is the Spirit of God motivating me and I'm discerning that this is from God, even though it's against my tradition, this is from, from God. And, and here's what I want to say. Just because you have never seen a certain tool used 
doesn't mean that that tool doesn't have a purpose. Just because you have never seen or experienced a certain gifting in the church in operation doesn't mean that it's out of order. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, but I want you to understand. I want you to be built up into the full measure so that you can walk in the wholeness, the the completeness, the unity of God. Jesus dealt in discerning of spirits many, many times in his earthly ministry, but a couple of them are very direct. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus deals with one of his own disciples, Peter, the very one I was singing the praises about because he got it right when he discerned that God was talking to him, now has joined, uh, you know, he's early in his ministry, joined the ranks of Jesus, and he had to be corrected by Jesus when he discerned the spirits. It says uh, in verse 23, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus was prophesying or predicting, telling his disciples that this is the passion. This is what I must do. This is my purpose. I have to do this. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine someone rebuking Jesus? Peter, this is, I mean, nobody else would do this. Peter was the rough rider. Peter was the one that was always the loud mouth. He was the brash guy. He was coarse. He was ready to, for the challenge. And so he takes Jesus aside and says, no, don't say you're going to die. Don't say you're leaving. You're the Lord. You're the Messiah. You're the one. And he began to rebuke Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What was Peter trying to do? He was trying to short circuit the process. He was trying to circumvent the plan of God. He was trying to get in the way because of his own human desires. How many times have we ever tried to advise somebody not to do the hard thing because we would never do it that way and we're being like an amateur province in their own lives trying to sway them this direction or that direction? When really what we should do is just trust God that he can direct them. After we've given them the insight, we've given them uh, the, the information, then we trust God with the rest. And Peter is rebuking Jesus. Look at verse 23. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, and you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus discerned the spirit that was in operation underneath the motivation of Peter. Peter was rebuking Jesus when really he needed rebuked himself, and Jesus was glad to do it. Now, you'll see that Jesus was not all mild, meek, and well-mannered. There were some times where he would just simply say, no, get behind me, Satan. Well, does that mean Peter was possessed? No, Peter wasn't possessed, but he was operating in the spirit of the world. He was operating in that self-preservation. He was operating in such a way that he was going to, if he had his way, and he convinced Jesus not to go to Jerusalem, then he would have stood in the way of the plan of God. Jesus wasn't going to happen, have it. Uh, Jesus also uh, operated in discerning his spirits when he dealt with the Pharisees. In John 8 and 44, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Was Jesus saying that all the Pharisees were possessed? No. 
What he's saying is that they're operating in the seed of the serpent. They're operating in the offspring like their father, the devil. They're operating in a fallen nature. They have a mindset of self-preservation to do it their way. And the spirit behind that was evil, not good, was Satan, not God. And so Jesus operated in the gift of discerning of spirits to cut through the clutter and just know all of his disciples are watching this as it's happening. They're learning. They're picking it up. They're taking notes. They're realizing, wow, Jesus was able to delineate that, and he could see right through the clutter, and he got to the basis of their true motivation. And that's what discerning of spirits will do for you, is that it will help you to cut through all the clutter, to, to see beyond the lies, to get to the real brass tacks of the matter, and then to choose rightly and to apply the knowledge and use wisdom in what God would have you to do. As they get ready to come and, and close, I want to close today the same way that we closed last week. First and foremost is I never like to close a service without giving you an opportunity to cross that line of faith for the very first time or to just come closer to the Lord. Maybe it's, it's been a little while since you've prayed. Maybe you've never prayed. But if you want to say yes to Jesus, if you want to make that life-altering, life-changing decision that you'll be glad you made when you stand before God in eternity. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a criminal's death, but on the third day, he rose from the grave with victory over death, hell, and the grave. And if you believe that, then you too can be born again. And you want to say yes to Jesus, then I would invite you to come forward. Maybe you've drifted and you used to be close to God, but you're not as close as you used to be, and this would be a good day to say, I want to update my relationship with Jesus, then I would invite you to come and pray. But for the others in here that are believers, and you've been stirred by these messages the last couple of weeks, and you're really wondering, what giftings does God have for me? Well, I don't know the specific gift. I don't know how the Spirit will will to de determine a gift in your life, but I do know this, that gifts of God are available for the asking. And maybe you want to come and we'll pray with you. Our elders and our deacons will be ready. We'll pray with you and seek God with you for a spiritual gift, for that desire that you can be utilized by God in your own life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's, let's just pray before God. Father, I thank you that you have given to us these messages, these words of life from your word of truth for every heart that is hungry, for every person that is desiring, I pray that they would draw near today, whether it be that commitment for the first time to say yes as Savior and Lord to Jesus or it be an updating, today is the day. Whether it be that person that would say, I want to know how that I can flow and operate in the spiritual gifts, that that would be for them today. But whatever it is, God, our hearts are ready. We receive your word in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.